Hello and welcome. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and this is Outlier Academy, where we study the world's best entrepreneurs and investors to deconstruct what they've mastered and find out how they stay at the top of their game. Today, I'm excited to share my conversation with Sebastian DeWiff, co-founder of Lux and designer behind the award-winning apps Halide and Spectre. This episode is a special one because I followed Sebastian for literally his entire career. I even tried to recruit him to the design team while I was at Square. And aside from being an incredible designer, Sebastian has built one of the world's most successful independent iOS app businesses with Lux. And it all started in 2017 when Ben Sandowski and Sebastian launched their first app, Halide, which went on to top the charts in the App Store and win Apple's App of the Year award. Halide makes it incredibly easy to capture and edit beautiful raw photos right on your iPhone and now your iPad. They followed that up with the release of Spectre, which makes it easy to take long exposure photos, which also topped the App Store and won them a second App of the Year award. All of Lux's app are centered around photography, and they're building a next-generation camera company. And they just celebrated their fourth anniversary. So I sat down with Sebastian to discuss how they've designed, built, and shipped multiple award-winning apps, how they've built an incredible business around those apps, his advice for building valuable digital products, and why spending insane amounts of time crafting a few delightful details makes sense. This conversation is a special one. Trust me and give it a listen. For notes, links, and transcripts for this episode, visit outlieracademy.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it with one friend or leave us a short review on Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's jump into my conversation with Sebastian DeWith of Lux. Sebastian, I have been looking forward to this interview for so long since we first tried to plan it, I don't know, maybe six months ago. So thank you so much for coming on Outlier Academy. I'm so excited to chat with you. I'm really excited to be here, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So... I feel like depending on the sphere you're in, people will know you, will know a little bit of your story. But for people listening that aren't familiar with your background, can you just, to kick things off, I guess, share just a quick kind of high-level sketch of your journey and how we got here? And I know that's a really deep question, but what I'm interested to explore is how'd you find design a little bit and what are some of the mile markers along the road? I'll skip the existential part of it, the philosophical (laughs) part. I'll just start on a small farm in the Dutch countryside, which is a nice mental picture for everybody (laughs) to start at. I grew up as a wee blonde lad in the Dutch countryside, and it was really just the middle of nowhere. I was always kind of like a pretty creative kid. I was also a rather independent kid, so I didn't love living there in the countryside. And so I decided to run away from home when I was 15 and drop out of school and went to art school instead. All the things no one wants you to do. (laughs) Yes, yes. By that time, I was already spending a lot of my time. Like, I just love making random art in Photoshop. And I never had the foggiest notion that that could one day become a job. Didn't really think or care about that, but in art school, it started becoming a job because I got a laptop, my first laptop, it was a Mac. And I honestly, it just, it intrigued me. Before then I was just messing around in Photoshop, but I realized that even doing small things on that computer made me delighted. It was this extremely strange experience where what should be mundane felt really pleasant and capturing that sensation just... Feeling it initially was already interesting. And then the idea that you could capture that sensation started really fascinating me. And I started to try to recreate some of that delight with the thing that fascinated me the most, and that was icons. So I designed lots of icons. And back then, you know, this was before the iPhone was out. So this was in the the early 2000s. People still did quite a bit of customization on their computers. And so icon sets were a thing. People like me would make little icons in Photoshop and you could replace the icons in your system with those. So I had some pretty interesting designs. And putting those on the internet, I got in touch with my first clients. They hired me to design icons for their software. Still very grateful for the chance they took on me. And before you knew it, I did that full time. I eventually started working for bigger companies that just approached me. I got a little bit of a name for myself in making icons. I was a teenager at this point, I was 17. 17, making icons for HP. Just a little early. Yeah, 16, 17, making icons for the likes of like HP, for the new touchscreen computer, for like frog design, for like big design agencies. Often, interestingly, now I understand why. Like I would be puzzled that such a giant agency would send an email to a random teenager saying, we need icons tomorrow, basically. Sometimes literally tomorrow, yesterday. Now I get it. (laughs) It's a very pressing need and you need someone quickly to do what he was good good at making those things. And I had that niche pretty well locked down. And I was pretty comfortable doing that and started getting more into the other little bits around the periphery of icons, the user interface. So designing what makes an app actually delightful. The iPhone started coming out. So I started designing iPhone apps. 
And around, I think it was maybe a year after the iPhone came out, I got an email from Apple. I was 18. And they asked me if I wanted to become part of the iPhone design team to interview. Wow. It was shocking because I think until then, very quickly, I wasn't a Mac or Apple person until I got that laptop. So when I was like 16 or so, very quickly became my ambition was to become a designer at Apple. Just it seemed like the thing that I wanted to do. And working with Steve, who still was there at the time, Steve Jobs, was like, oh, my God. I ended up not taking him up on it. One of the reasons was because I dropped out of art school because I was just full-time doing freelance design at that point. And to get to the US, you you needed a visa. And the main H-1B visa, which a lot of people get when they move from abroad to work at a big tech company, requires a degree. (laughs) Yeah, we could kind of work around it. And Apple was actually really flexible about it, but I decided I didn't want to like upend my whole life at the time and try for it. So I kind of let that go, but ended up actually doing freelance work for them. So for two years full-time, I worked as a freelance designer for Apple on mobile me or iCloud before it was iCloud was a product called mobile me maybe one of the weirdest and worst brands Apple has ever <laughs> made <laughs> it is you know even reflecting it does stand out it does stand out as being especially unique it's bizarre not looking back now that, that if you can believe it that was something you bought you bought the online service it was optional I think it was like a hundred dollars something like that, a box it used to be called dot mac and that would be like your sort of online services. And Steve, at the time, I was like, oh, it's going to be a dream to work with Steve. Steve was extremely unhappy with MobileMe and how it went. At its launch, it basically melted down. It was a terrifying time to be working there because all of his focus was on it, but it was his ire. It wasn't his admiration. He thought, this is make it or break it, and mostly it's breaking. You don't want that, Steve. You don't want that, Steve. So... It was immensely, immensely challenging, much more challenging than I could have ever thought it would be. But after those two years, I was also like, okay, I need like a break from things. I decided to finally move from the Netherlands. Me and my girlfriend broke up and I was like, okay, I moved to the United States. I'd already fallen in love with San Francisco. I was 23 at the time and I started interviewing at a few different companies. I think I ran into you at Square back then. I was like interviewing there with Jack. I interviewed at Apple. I interviewed at HP which by then had bought WebOS, which I'd done a little bit of work for. They sunsetted that entire product like less than a half year after I interviewed. They were very glad I didn't go with that. And there was a startup called Double Twist, which I'd done design work for. They were an Android company, and I thought that was the most promising and interesting one just because I was maximizing my impact and doing something entirely different than Apple. They made Android apps, Windows phone apps, totally different. So I thought, okay, we'll do that. I became the head of design at that startup. I was there for a few years. They basically spun down their operations, moved to Texas, and then I decided to take a break from a lot of things going on in life. I think a bit of a sabbatical. We can get into that later if you want to hear my story on like how I moved to the US, because that's kind of a crazy one. But basically got divorced. I left that job, had a moment of reckoning of finding my passions in life. Been doing freelance design since, basically. And then I was just living in San Francisco being a freelance designer until my friend Ben sent me a fateful message saying, hey, you want to make a camera app together? Almost four years to the day ago, we released this little app called Halide. And it was an app we made just because we were both avid photographers. We love photography. And we figured for us, there was no good solution out there. And maybe if we could make something for ourselves, it would be good for a handful of other people that would, might, might enjoy it. And since then, it has become a business. Just been slightly more successful than that. <laughs> yes, we've... It has, to put it mildly, exceeded our expectations. (laughs) Uh, And it's gone very, very well. And now we're the top camera app on the App Store. And we have a second app, which got the iPhone app of the year by Apple in 2019, called Spectre. And now our hobby, our little tiny project, has grown into an impromptu business with an incredible success. And we're very excited about that. Well, it's an incredible story, and we're going to get into a lot more of it in just a second. I normally try to limit the questions I'll ask on someone's background, but there's two questions I have to ask, just kind of knowing yours. I think the first is, for that two-year period, I had the experience of working at Apple, and you know, depending on what team you're in, your mileage just totally, there's not really a similar experience. It really depends on where you are you know, in the company there. So you obviously weren't at the company full-time, but you were freelancing full-time, and you got to work on something that sounds like was, I'm sure it was rewarding, but also really challenging. What did you take away from those two years? Was there any kind of big aha moments you learned about product 
design, about what it means to take those mundane things and make them delightful. What nuggets did you take away that you can pass on? Honestly, I think it was one of the greatest learning moments of my career easily. And I think you hear that a lot, right? That's like a thing you hear from Apple. People say two things. One, I learned a tremendous amount. And two, it was incredibly punishingly a lot of work. They work you to the bone. I think it's because they tend to hire people that are really passionate and you just can't turn that off. Your work consumes you. I have a friend now and she's pretty far along in her pregnancy, but she says like, oh, like having a kid will be easy. It's my job at Apple. That's hard. It's like, it's almost right. <laughs> that puts it into perspective. Yeah. <laughs> it puts it into perspective. <laughs> I think one of the things that really blew my mind was, and this was so different for me as a designer. I'd worked with clients large and small. Like I worked with Sony's and Mozilla's and HP's and all that stuff. And I would make a design and we'd present it to stakeholders. We would present it maybe to design directors or CEOs. And we'd be like, okay, this is the design. And people say like, okay, good. Or like, you know, maybe we need to rethink it or something. But overall, it was a fairly normal design process with conception idea. It was a little bit of iteration and completing. This at Apple, it was you make complete, polished, perfect designs. Not concepts, not sketches, not wireframes. We made, this was back in the day when it was basically like dimensional artwork. These were like very... Especially Mobile Me. Yes. Like, I think the epitome of the kind of physicality that Apple had. Physicality is a great way to put it. Yes. So we were working with materials like rendering wood and metals and all those things in the user interface. And that would be your design proposal. And we make several of those. It wouldn't just be one. Like design, oh, do you like it or not? No, we'd make 10. And same thing with iconography. Like we'd make the best icons I'd ever make. And then it would go to a Steve review. And the feedback back would simply be like, no. Just like the word no. And then... The first time that happened to me, I can recall it really well. I was just dumbfounded. I was like, what do you mean? No. And where do you go from there? Yeah. Yeah. I put my <laughs> everything into this. I love this work. And you're like, yeah, everybody else who's already used to it just acts like it's the most normal thing in the world. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So we go back to work and it's like, but I gave it everything and you didn't. Until now, you just didn't realize that you hadn't given it all. And the most valuable lesson to that was sometimes it's great to just, it seems like it's impossible. Sometimes it's great to just to throw it out and start over. Like that's why I made my best work. And it's also, I think, why it burns people out. <laughs> yeah. I have to ask you a follow-up question on that as well, too. And I'm sorry, I'll get out of this rabbit hole in just a sec. But I appreciate the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> I had a similar experience at Apple where I had done a lot of freelance work up until I ended up working there for three and a half years. When I was there, a lesson that I've taken away, because I've seen no company, no design team I've been a part of, has embraced deep exploration as much as Apple does. And the story that I tell people is we would work on a project, they would literally set aside the first month or two months, which if you're working at a startup, that sounds insane. Like if you go to a startup founder and you say, hey, we're going to take one to two months to do explorations. Nothing, does, we're not even going <laughs> to ship anything, just explorations. They would blow a gasket, but Apple would do that. And I guess the lesson I took away from it was, you knew at the end of the day, and I worked on the marketing side a lot, that what was going to end up shipping on whatever project you worked on was going to be this beautiful but kind of small iterative step forward. But to get there, Apple would make you literally blow it out. You'd look at crazy ideas, mild ideas, simple ideas, and then you take the best of those things and bring them together into the project. And anyways, it was just a totally different way of thinking, but it informed so much of how I try to think about what you need to do to actually create great work. Is that your takeaway as well too? And for other people that maybe hear that and think it's insane, what would you say to them about why it's not insane or why that's worth doing? Yeah, it's interesting because it does seem really wild as a process. But you can't really tangibly see the benefits of it until you go through it. And we actually, I think we see this in our day-to-day -day lives where we are sometimes just forced to confront resets like that. We make reconsiderations, readjustments in life at the risk of sound starting to sound very philosophical. It applies to a lot of things. And it is an excellent way to get better and explore what's out there. And while it takes a lot of effort, I think what Apple shows is like, People notice if you put that level of effort into something. It's very, that level of deliberation is something that is noticeable to people, even if they don't see the finer details of the design. You can feel it in the, in the yeah. final design, in the final execution. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, the way I've kind of thought about it myself, or the best way I've found to articulate it is just that through super broad exploration, because typically in design, you kind of do a lot of thinking, do a lot of kind of learning, do a lot of research. And then I think most of the time, you hone in on a pretty narrow approach really quickly. And then you just go deep down that rabbit hole. And Apple is very different where you stay up on the surface level for a long time. You explore this thing 
literally from 360 degrees. Like you're going to have to, I mean, literally like part of the job was just sitting there being like, well, what else could I try? What else could potentially work? And that is really uncomfortable because when you're doing that, you're struggling, you're banging your head up against the wall. You know, it doesn't feel, you don't feel superhuman in that design process, but you get better work out the other side. It's very true. Yeah. I think one of the anecdotes that I can like share by now was like, we worked on like find my friends was like one of the apps and I got to be honest. I mean, Steve just didn't like the concept of it. So he wasn't really on board with it from the get go. So our job was just to make funny designs that made it less creepy. I mean, at this is a different era. Nowadays, I actually right now have like 30 friends on find my friends and there's like Zen Lee and there's all sorts of like snap maps. This was before social media location sharing was really a thing. It was deeply creepy. And that's how Steve felt it was. And a lot of companies would just be like, oh, slap the default UI on it, it's fine. It was clear at Apple that we had to do something kind of wacky with the visual design to make it, I don't know, make it stand out or make it disarm users a little bit with some visual delight. And maybe we threw everything at it, Daniel. Like I have the craziest Photoshop files on my desk still. I mean, there was some some really weird stuff. And that was, like you say, you approach it from every angle just to see what you can get. It was weird stuff, but it was very polished. (laughs) Yeah, the last thing I'll say about that, let me get out of this rabbit hole and move on. But the last thing I'd say about that is what you learn going through that process is that's the only way you ever get to something surprising because everything else is going to just be like, well, yeah, of course, you know, you have to get to really push past the obvious stuff, which is really challenging. And I think it applies to a bunch of other disciplines. But the example that I'd share is I remember... This was, I mean, now I think iTunes has gone through one or two rebrandings. Now it's music and it's totally changed. But this was at a point in time in the previous version of it when it was still called iTunes and they were searching for a new icon for it. And we brought on two full-time people that literally all they did was explore different executions for that icon. And I specifically remember, you know, we have these pinup foam boards that Apple would use all over the place. And these things are, for anyone that hasn't seen one, these things are like four feet, five feet wide by like seven feet tall. And literally two of those were covered. And it was everything from what looked like a circus tent to what looks like a movie theater booth to physical stuff, not physical stuff, simple stuff, metaphorical stuff. It's just everything. And anyways, so, you know, I think if for anyone listening, I think the conclusion to maybe draw from this is if you ever look at something that Apple does and you're just like, wow, how did they get there? There's not like there's geniuses that snap their finger and have this idea in 30 seconds. It's a lot of brutally hard work as you made the point. Emphasis on the brutal. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I want to talk about a little bit is your journey is fascinating to me because I remember when you would come up with those icon sets and I would still put you in the top handful of people of kind of icon designers, visual designers in the world in terms of the ways that you could execute that. And maybe that's comfortable or not comfortable for you, but it still feels that way to me. But at the same time, you've managed to be not only great at visual design, but great at product design, which in my mind are two different things. So I guess I'm curious, the question I would ask from someone on the outside looking in is, how different are those things really? And do you find a lot of commonalities there? And just anything else to share about how you made that journey and what it was like to take that leap and go from one to the other? I think initially, because I'm such a visual person, I conflated that a lot. I was just like, if it looks good, it's probably good. And that led me, because you just breathe and live like, you're a very visual person. You start absorbing a lot of that. You pull in products that are visually appealing to you, things that you just eat and live and dream it. And you quickly notice where the hangups are, where the visual polish stops and the, the sort of like bumpy road lies underneath. And I think that is what eventually made me transition towards being like, if I want to do this right, I got to design the whole thing. I can't just put a layer of paint on it. And I think the first time that it really came up was with HP when they just hired me to do like icons and stuff. And then eventually I just scope creeped my way in there. And I was just like, also, I just made this whole design. I know you have an existing user interface here, but I just made this whole design. I think this is just like kind of better. And like, I would just shamelessly like email it like one level up the chain and stuff. And it would be like someone saying like, oh, this actually looks really good. Why don't we do this? And probably <laughs> piss some people off that way, which I've gotten a lot better at since, but I was just an unruly teenager. I'm so sorry to anyone listening who worked with me back then. Jonathan, I'm deeply sorry. But yeah, that's kind of how I transitioned into that, I think. And it's a lot, I think, of just using things and then being really frustrated. It's kind of like that thing that people say when you teach someone about typography and they will never enjoy the world again because once you see the amount of terrible choices people make. (laughs) (laughs) And then you will want to become someone that makes the world a better place. (laughs) Or you'll just wish you could shut that part of your brain off. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Please just cut it out. (laughs) 
Okay, so jumping then, I want to start getting into the story around your first app and then how that kind of transformed to Lux. And we talked about at the beginning that I know you shared this for anyone that's interested. I actually don't know the website. So I know people can go to luxcamera.co? Lux.camera, yes. Lux.camera. Okay, I almost got that right. So anyway, for anyone curious, please, please, please go to lux.camera to be able to see all the different apps. And I know there's a blog post there you guys recently shared where it has a little bit of kind of the origin story. But I think what I was curious to explore is if you could just flesh out a little bit more how that app came to be. So I know you guys are both photography buffs. I know you probably felt like you had a great photo in data stored somewhere, but maybe you couldn't get it into the app. Like talk about, I guess, was there a moment where you decided to build this and knew exactly what it was? Just what was that kind of journey like? Because I think it's interesting you scratched your own itch. And it's also interesting that you entered a space that I think for a lot of people would say, there's no way you can innovate you know, in the space. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I was talking to someone yesterday and I was reminded of when we launched it four years ago. My mother was visiting at the time and I was living in North Beach in this apartment in San Francisco. And I hadn't really kept up with her what I was up to. She knew that I was like doing consulting with companies and like putting together design teams and that stuff. And she saw me working on my laptop and working a lot. And she's like, what are you up to? And I was like, oh, I'm actually making a little camera app thing. And so it's one of those things where you're like, don't worry about it. It's nothing, you know? And she's like, oh, interesting. And she doesn't know that much about apps. She doesn't have a lot of apps on her iPhone. But she literally said, aren't there just a lot of those kind of apps already? (laughs) So yeah, I did it against like knowing better, basically getting into it. But I'm not sure if people remember the old iPhones had a camera app that had this really nice like silver metal sort of interface. And if you took a picture, there was a sort of aperture shape that closed on top of your, it was really cool because it was an effect they used to hide just how atrociously slow the camera was. It was just a very poorly performing, very bad camera, but it felt really magical. And I think since then I got more and more into photography when I moved to San Francisco. It's actually the reason I moved to San Francisco and that's a whole longer story altogether in a way. But I always wanted to do something with that passion. Like I felt like there was a good overlap there between like the interface and the camera. Cause if you use a digital camera nowadays, you know how frustrating it is to be overwhelmed with all the knobs and buttons. And if you use your iPhone, you're almost similarly frustrated, especially back then with how little control you have. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to explore if there is a sort of a middle ground here? Because my mom was right. There were a lot of other apps, but they all resembled like if you've seen the show, the HBO show Chernobyl, they have this control room and it is filled with, I think, 39,000 unlabeled buttons <laughs> and dials and like little lights. That's how they feel to me. And it's fine. Some people want all of the complexity, all the control. But to me, someone who is a photography enthusiast, that's intimidating. And I can't imagine how other people feel <laughs> using that. So I thought, maybe we can do something here. Yeah. Super interesting. And so there's kind of two parts of that that I would love to explore a little bit. I think one is obviously the design user interface layer, but the other is the kind of underlying technology and all the engineering work that goes into that. And I know something I think that's unique about what you're building is you and Ben are both amazingly talented at what you do and you kind of knit both of those sides together. So I guess my question is, it sounds like on the design side, you were looking for something in the middle. You maybe had a little bit of an insight about where this app could kind of slip into that. On the engineering side, was there like, oh my gosh, here's all these things we could take advantage of that no one's taking advantage of? And what were some examples of that? The way it kind of all started was actually Ben sending me a Twitter DM. Isn't Twitter great, by the way? Like, I, <laughs> I, like Twitter changed my life, honestly. Like, the amount of people I met through Twitter, that's a whole thing altogether. But I'm with you. truly, gratitude for a moment there. But he reached out to me after, I think it was WWDC 2016, when Apple announced that they were going to add an API to take raw photos on your iPhone and the stock camera app wouldn't support it, but you could then control the shutter speed, the white balance, like there was gonna be some programmatic controls for things like manual focus. And Ben had just read an article I wrote on the Leica M, which was a camera that is very much a purist's camera. And I, I love that camera to death. I used it for a while. I literally crashed my motorcycle and fell on top of it. And like, I was hurt more than the camera, I think. <laughs> they're, they're beasts. They're just tanks. Lovely, super German utilitarian design. Nothing but admiration there. But having read that, he was like, it seems like an interesting person to develop a camera app with. So he sent me a message saying like, hey, this is possible now. Would you be open to working on an app like that together? And I Like I just mentioned, thinking about that for a while. And I was like, yes, let's meet up. So we met up in a coffee shop in San Francisco, halfway between North Beach and Van Ness, where he lived. 
and it immediately just clicked. Like he had a little prototype. There's some hilarious screenshots I can link up. I'm sure it looked great. <laughs> it was one of those classic engineer designed apps. I think it was called Zeit back then still. And then we just started working on it as a little side project. And I think it was a bit under a year later that we decided to launch it. Maybe the last question I'd want to ask there is, what did that year look like? What was, we talked a little bit about that Apple process. What was the process of you and Ben fleshing this thing out together? And I think too, what was your process on the design side to try to get to what you felt like, oh yeah, this is what this app should look like and feel like. Yeah, that's so interesting. The process is like, it was so refreshing to me because at the time freelance design for me was like coming into companies and either becoming a design lead for a little bit or putting together a team for them or just doing, you know, individual contributor stuff and designing products. And it was always with the team. And I'd come off a design manager role, like head of design at a startup. And before that, I was obviously cog in the large Apple machine. This was a delightful little one-on-one project. And if collaboration is good, it can be great if you are really in tune. And me and Ben are just incredibly in tune. In that first year, we didn't build prototypes. We built actual functional apps. Like we would just be like, oh, let's try this. Then we just build it and we would just play with that. And that's how we came to like a lot of the gestural interactions that are in there that kind of make it special. We never kind of bothered with, you know, I'll put a framer thing. Like previously with other companies, I would build prototypes. But this was so, it was also so close to the metal. You want to have a real camera that like we just kept using it. And that was an awesome process. We would work on it mostly like two to three days a week. So in like the weekends, I had a lot of like design work. I was working with an email company, Nihilus at the time, designed their product. And yeah, I think it accelerated towards the end because we had to sort of let it sit for a little bit because we were both a little too occupied. And then I think in April, 2017, I sent a message to Ben and I was like, okay, let's finish it. Let's just, let's wrap it up and we'll get it out before WWC. And uh, we really worked hard on it. That was like, we were very much just working on it seven days a week at the end there. And just like any other project like that, they were personal projects, you know, it's from your own websites. You're deeply unhappy with it, but you're like, I should ship this. <laughs> it's not done, but I think we should get it out and then we can say we did it. That was kind of like what that year was like. And we really had no expectations finishing it. We truly were just like, it's all right. Let's just release it. <laughs> I'm sure you'd bolstered it for so long at that point. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm curious. So obviously this started out as a hobby. You guys were scratching your own itch. You ship this app. It ends up becoming not just, you know, somewhat successful, but really successful enough to where you could move from having just one app to having a company with multiple different apps. And was there a moment when you knew that the app had really taken off or where you were both just, wow, this is like already beyond our beliefs of where this could go? And then I think another question I'd really be curious to know kind of where you come in on is what contributed to the app's success as you think back on it? I mean, when it came out, and it was funny because yesterday I was at a dinner of my friend whose birthday it was. And I remember the day after I launched that, I flew to Palm Springs to go be with him for his birthday. Initially, just seeing it on every website was wild. Like, he's not unusual tech websites, which I kind of expected. Like, oh, maybe I'll get a McRumors article or something. You know, these like very much the Apple community websites. And then there's The Verge, which is like more of a mainstream tech website. And then outside of that, you know that you've done something very special if it hits outside of tech, because then it's something else. And I didn't do very much press outreach like I do now. I did send it to some people and I was like, hey, check it out. Let's launch an app. would highly recommend that to anyone who starts a project like that. Um, I mean, it never hurts. Send people in the press and say, like, I'm doing this. It's cool. This is why it's cool. Just a little short message. But it started getting picked up at, like, lifestyle websites, you know. So it goes on, like, I think it was, like, on New York Times and it was on Uncrate and, like, High Snobiety had it. You know, design websites started picking it up. And that was really cool. And that really made me feel like, whoa, this is a big deal. But it still feels really, you know, you close the lid of your laptop and you go back to life. And then I flew to Palm Springs and I was, I think, at the Ace Hotel and I saw someone install the app. And I knew that was my app because we were at the top charts. And I wanted to talk about, like, it's your own project, your own silly things. We made it so the onboarding has a tiny little facsimile of a camera manual. It's like a little paper thing you thumb through. I never learned my old tricks from Apple, clearly, when I was designing all these very physical things. <laughs> but it's like a little tiny little you know, camera Polaroid manual almost. You leaf through it to get to the permission screen. And I saw someone like leafing through it at the pool. And I was like, oh my God, this is That's crazy. Super cool <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. 
I'm curious too, how much of it do you attribute to building it for yourselves? Because I think there's something, anytime somebody is able to have a breakout success and the origin story is not that they did a bunch of market research, talked with a bunch of people, tried to figure out what the quote unquote world wanted and took the total opposite approach, which I think it generally seems to be shunned or at least seems to be a lot less popular, a lot less recommended of just scratching your own itch. What did you learn about the importance of that? And how much do you contribute to the app being successful with just doing what you're passionate about and making it for yourselves? Yeah, a huge part of like great products usually, and this is not just me talking about hell, I'm just talking about things I enjoy, are things that comfortably go for a niche that are very opinionated and just don't work for everyone. There's different products that, of course, out of necessity have to work for everybody. But if you make something, it's okay to try to not make it appeal to the greatest common denominator. And this is actually something Apple kind of did because when we work there, and I know I'm not sure what it is nowadays, the process might be very different, but there's very minimal user research. Apple does a lot of stuff by feel. And I think one of the greatest underrated things in technology nowadays is intuition. A lot of people try to kind of chase the metrics, look at the absolute things, and you think you have control over it. You can get lost in those things and give yourself the illusion of control. But when it comes down to it, design and engineering, a lot of it can be made great by just trusting your intuition and going after like passion. And I think for us, that definitely contributed greatly to the success. Because if we had asked, and this is a, you know, a very tired trope, you know, it's like the Ford quote, like if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said like a horse with wheels. Very much. Never heard it say that way. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) A faster horse. But, you know, I'm just making it funny. But, like, if we'd looked at what users wanted, it it would have been a drastically different product. And maybe that would have been a different niche altogether. But I think there is something really to be said for opinionated products. I love that. You had so many great little points in your answer there. So, I want to transition now and talk about Lux. And there's a couple things that I think are super interesting there. So, you have this first successful app, then you end up shipping Spectre, which is the second successful app. Now it's turned into a company that looks like it's, I guess from the outside looking in, it seems like you're building the next great camera and photography company. How do you guys think about the mission and why be photography specific in what you're building in that space? We started out by just following our passion and we were both just passionate photographers and that's how we ended up with that project and ended up with the project looking and feeling the way it does. And that has completely shaped the company culture. We've grown, like we took our first engineer and we, we were very deliberate in trying to find growth there. We weren't just like, okay, we need more engineers, so let's find any engineer. Our dream is to work with Rebecca Slatkin. She was a friend, she's a peer, she's incredible, just an inspiring and fantastic developer. And we didn't want to compromise, just like we didn't want to compromise on what we delivered as an app. We set off to make that possible, and we did. And that's kind of been like the guidance ever since. And you're observing very correctly in that we are really aiming to become a photography company. We've done actually done a little bit of consulting with larger camera brands for you know, photography, improving the photography experience. And we intend to keep doing that. As long as it fits in our realm, I think everything is going to keep being driven by that North Star of just... We're passionate about imagery, photography, and everything that is adjacent to it. Yeah. And you found this amazing fit of you're creating software that people broadly really want. And it has a really unique aesthetic and look and feel to it. And I love that you brought up, I love the intuition part of your answer, because I agree with you that I think that that's something that now a lot of people, I think, have learned not to trust or been told not to trust. And I think that a lot of people are losing touch with that. And I think if your background is in design, if your background's in something creative, I think there's just a disordinately large part of your brain that's tuned in to intuition. Cause I think that's frankly how a lot of the job kind of happens. The other question I wanted to ask is, and it's maybe a little bit of a follow-up on what we talked about before it builds off some of the themes, but I think just to nerd out for a second, something else that I love about your app is it seems to me you've leaned in really hard into that physicality element. You know, one that seems like your background, I know that you have a deep affinity for physical things, which maybe you could talk about for a little bit, cameras and motorcycles and what you've learned from that, how it's influenced the way you build product. So maybe we can start there. And then I've got a couple other follow-up questions, but I'm curious for your take on your love of physicality and how you see that fitting into the software work that you do. I feel like that's almost like a paradox, right? I think that was probably the great struggle we all experienced back when design for the iOS 6 days, when design was so detailed, is that we were coming to grips with the fact that we had these lifeless slabs of glass, but we tried to make them feel a little bit like how satisfying it was to do things with tactile objects. And 
you're so right. I'm obsessed with the light of physical sensation and like physical products. I'm holding a little pen right now I'm fidgeting with that has just this like, incredibly nice action when I twist the little sort of knob at the end of it. To, to Who's it made by? I forget exactly what the company is, but it's, of course, what else? It's a Japanese company and they make there these. It's just there one solid piece of, I think, plated brass and just little knurled knob at the end has a very, very nice action. And that's one of the things I noticed with photography. Like, I love the physicality of the older film cameras. Like, I got into it with, like, a Canon, like anybody does, you know, one of those EOS little digital bodies. And it feels like a fight, kind of. You have this thing that is a little computerized. It kind of tries to be smart. You'll see people, like, the flash comes up and then people push it back down. And it's like, oh. But if you give, like, a film camera to someone, the first thing they do without fail as they look at it and they're like oh and they see it looks really pretty because usually they're kind of silver and they reflect light which is like there's a whole thing to be said there about the way it cameras used to interact with the light to capture and now they're just black and then they start twi- twiddling those little knobs there's like all these satisfying little little tiny aperture rings and focus rings and shutter speed rings and even if you don't know what they mean it's clear that someone put a lot of thought into how it feels to use so it's a good tactile sensation and that it is a pleasant thing to create as an extension of your eye and that's something that kind of gets lost a lot i think in modern appliance design we can either oversimplify things so it's just completely featureless stuff but like there was a youtube account at one point i think maybe it still exists called knob feel and it is just <laughs> someone going to like hi-fi stores or like whatever yeah don't maybe don't google search just search it on youtube so it's safe but it's he just twists little hi-fi equipment knobs and it goes like hmm and if it's like good it's it's good you know (laughs) i love it (laughs) yeah that was definitely a big inspiration and an endless pursuit because how do you make that app on glass tactile you know you get some a feeling like that it's very very challenging yeah it's easier with haptic feedback you know it's easier with well i would guess you guys spend a lot of time iterating on animation timing and super small details. And I would love to talk about that for a second. We could take this question in a bunch of different directions. It could be around animation, around other things. But I mean, maybe to draw a little bit of a parallel, something that I love that you did, which it seems like is maybe inspired by Leica or just the kind of typeface typography that you would find on camera lenses, which is very unique. I don't even quite know how to talk about it. Otherwise, that looks mechanical. Actually, I've got a book at home that's an older book. It's one of the kind of weird vintage books I have for no other reason than I just find it pleasing. <laughs> but it's a leather-bound <laughs> book, and it's literally just it's basically a book for engineers. And a lot of it's done in a draft-style typeface, you know, and it has just a bunch of different diagrams. And anyways, it feels like it fits into that world. But I imagine that also seems like something that could be indulgent. You're going to go off on this journey to create this custom typeface that I'm sure, you know, some people would be like, why do that? So I would love your take on maybe why do things like that and how much better or how much more unique or how much more interesting does that make the end product? Because it seems to me like that's an important input to making digital products feel like they're made with love and kind of handmade and hand done. Yeah, it's nice to think about like I can immediately like imagine the book that you just described, you know, that it has that certain feel to it. And I think I loved having it start out as a side project because I could just go off the deep end with that. And I went fully off the deep end. At some point I was looking at a few of my vintage camera lenses and I realized, oh, the typography on these lenses is so nice because there is a physical restriction here. They had to route the metal with a round router bit and then they have to draw kind of straight paths and they make minimal curves basically you can't really make the nice humanist typefaces we have nowadays nowadays mind you they can but back then it had to be routed and to do such a mechanical thing i think they probably did it with fairly strict restrictions on how this router bit could traverse like straight or diagonal so i thought of course i can spend as much time as i want on this so i'm going to make a typeface that has the same limitations so we made a typeface for halide that we set the UI in and we even matched the iconography to be the same weight. So the quote unquote router bit that does the etching in the interface, which is obviously not. Actually I love it. this level of detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the same size. So it, it all, it all like balances out. And for Spectre and Mark II, respectively, like our updates and the new apps, we did the same thing. We started making new typefaces to kind of respect the boundaries and respect the style of those things. And that is, I think is one of the ways that we got to kind of capture that. Another, which I thought was, fun was try to create throwbacks to how cameras work but without like a very clear visual cue to it so the gestures for instance on how you adjust exposure and focus if you hold a camera out if you just envision it if you're listening if you hold a camera out in front of you there's the lens on the front 
and then there's at the top there's usually a dial that you can twist for the shutter speed you twist that dial when it comes to like directions up and down and the lens you turn left and right to basically change the focus if you're focusing manually that became sort of cardinal directions in the app so you can swipe anywhere like that was that point of frustration i have with the built-in camera app like you had to like tap on it to change the parameter but if the moment you tapped you had given intents to the camera and the camera had to guess what you meant it had to guess do you want this exposed or in focus and having a two-dimensional interface lets you declare that intent so we let you swipe up or down to make it brighter or darker or left or right which is kind of a throwback to the way quote-unquote the cameras of old not phone cameras work to adjust those settings that was like just kind of a quote yeah invisible way to bring a tactile dimension to the app as well what are other, and this may be a shot in the dark, but you know, I know just from my own experience, obviously the things that you pour yourself into, the projects you're really proud of, it feels like there's kind of two things that immediately jump to mind. There's the things that just delight you as silly as they might be. And so I'm curious, one or two of those things in the app, maybe we've covered them, maybe we haven't. And then on the flip side, there are the things that you grappled with for so long to try to figure out how to take it before having that aha moment, maybe an example of kind of, you know, each of those. Yeah, the struggles. Yes. <laughs> the triumphs and the struggles that are things that maybe never were. I think, you know, obviously, like, the thing is, like, the typeface is something I would love to do. And the manual, like, making little tiny physical callouts like that were super fun. We had a little hidden gem in it at one point where the logo itself, most people actually don't know the origin of the name. It's like halide is the name of silver, a uh, type of silver salt that was used to make the first photosensitive material. So when you go look at photography, the film will have a silver halide emulsion on it, and that makes it sensitive to light, and that lets you capture a picture. So it's like the basic building block. Turns out it's a very hard-to-pronounce word. A lot of people <laughs> don't know how to pronounce it. That's kind of like why we named it halide. And so to kind of like bring that back, the app icon, which obviously I love to design, I gave it a very soft, shimmering like metal texture that's actually based on the way uh, metal emulsions work. So it has like a very even diffused kind of texture. And we even brought that to a little tiny part in the gallery. I'm not sure if it still does it. I think it might still do it, actually. And the top, if you look at all the images, the icon there actually has a gradient on it that moves as you move your phone. So it sends the accelerometer data and adjusts the gradient accordingly because it's silver halide. That's one of those little details that I'm just like, yes, that's very, very satisfying. That and like the terrain pages. And when it comes to things that were just incredibly difficult, I think on an ongoing basis, honestly, it is that trade-off between for one, we, we'd never intended to add years and years worth of features to it. And I immediately realized how hard of a job that people at Apple or like Google have or any phone maker to balance all those features people want and expect in a camera without getting in the way of taking a photo. That is still a struggle. And what I really want to do is allow it to be intuitive and empowering to people to understand photographic concepts through just exploration so you can choose manual settings and understand how shutter speed affects your picture because the direct manipulation gives you kind of an idea that continues to be such a struggle like to try to make it so simple that it is empowering i'm not sure if i really cracked it yet for some people apparently but i want to make it so much better and that's an ongoing project for sure yeah. My sense on that one is it seems like one of those never ending pursuits. You know, it's like it's always it's like a balancing beam and on the weight on both sides is always being changed based off obviously the features that are in it, the features that are new, the new APIs that come out, changing behavior. It's a challenge. Yeah. Once you have something to figure out how to iterate on it intentionally without losing that kind of magic spark that made it work in the first place. One thing I want to say about that is a big realization I had at one point is everybody shared these pictures in the photography world. If you look at the business of photography, you have these charts of Sony, Nikon, Canon, etc. They might have great news and they might make great cameras, but they have charts and they're all down and to the right. All camera sales are forever declining. And people, Apple especially in their keynotes, like to say, we're the most popular camera now, you know, where people take photos. What a lot of people think is that photography is vanishing. What is actually happening is that there is more people getting into and being exposed to photography than ever. And the transition of just taking a picture on your phone to the act of being interested or approaching photography as art or as a functional discipline has never been greater. It's like the most exciting moment for that. So when I say that like that is a constant struggle, I also realize how privileged I am to be working on that right now 
as there is so much potential and as so many people are looking for tools to help them learn about that and are passionate about this newfound interest in capturing images. Yeah, that's an amazing perspective. Okay, one more question that we're going to switch over and I want to explore passion because I know it's been a huge force in your life that shaped a lot of your career. So my last question is for anyone listening that's inspired by your story. I think some of the stuff that stands out to me is I distinctly remember back when the App Store first came out, but felt super vibrant in that there was just so many apps and these weren't billion dollar startups. These were people like yourselves and Ben just making these delightful things and being able to make a living out of it. And then that slowly changed over time. And yet here you are shipping this thing that maybe feels hobby like that ends up turning into a business. So for anyone that's inspired by that, I think kind of the two things I'd love to be able to draw out for those people is any advice you might have that's generalizable for building a great iOS app. I know it's an overly broad question, but I'll leave it there. And then the second one would just be any advice you have on the business side of the equation. And I know that can be a really deep rabbit hole. We'll try to stay high level, but I think both on product and business, what advice do you have for people listening that might be inspired by your story? Yeah. And I hope that if the story reaches someone and you are inspired and you have an idea in mind to go do it, because if anything, people like, you know, even my mom was like, oh, there are like a lot of apps out there. There are not a lot of good apps actually. And to the people that especially if you have a niche and almost any app idea has a niche, it will be like a glass of ice water in hell. If you are thoughtful about making something, and that's what I would say, like take your time to make a thoughtful product, it will be received well. It will definitely be received well. Apple exposes them now. They have a whole editorial team worldwide, different editorial teams that look for it. They will resonate if you put effort into it. Be thoughtful about that. Don't half-ass it and put some effort into it and it will be well received. On the business side of things, we are we knew that crazy wave of like all the people making apps and there was sort of an app gold rush for a little bit in the the earlier days of the app store. And what happened there is we also kind of drove prices into the ground. It started becoming a lot of like free games, free apps or like ads or that kind of thing. In our blog post on our four-year retrospective, Ben made this interesting observation. He said, Folgers used to be what the expectation around coffee was. It was a five cent cup commodity. And Starbucks, the second wave coffee came around and started saying, you know, if, if it's a really good cup, it's worth five bucks. That transformation business-wise is insane. That is remarkable, convincing people of that value. And that's kind of like what we set out to do. We're like, actually, we're comfortable charging. Right now, we actually, we charge $40 for our app when one-time fee, or there's like a subscription option, but we used to be seven as a one-time purchase. We were comfortable charging that because we knew it was worth it. And if you're making something and you put some thought into it, price it accordingly. People will recognize it as that. And if you discount yourself, people will also assume that you are a discount product. Like it's okay to put so much work into it that it feels like a premium. Then also charge charge a premium for it. Yeah, I think that's it's a great advice. I love just the focus on thoughtfulness because I think that so much falls underneath that. And it really does, I think, sum up kind of in one word the nature of the apps that you've made. And I think why Lux and its apps have stood out in a sea of pretty shitty apps generally. <laughs> apps that, you know, generally check a functional box or don't imbue, don't make your day better, aren't something you enjoy interacting with. It's almost like this dreaded thing you have to open and get something done in and then hopefully close as quickly as possible. <laughs> right. I mean, the light is like fundamentally undervalued as well. We'll always say that. Everybody remembers the first time they used Shazam. And if you chase that, if you manage to get that in your product, I think you're going to do just fine. Okay. I want to switch over and explore passion now. As I was thinking about this and just before the interview, there's a bunch of different things to explore there. So I think the one that I wanted to start with is I think if you could just talk about why passion has been so important for you. When I think about that in my own life, the common retort that I hear back is this debate on should you follow your passion or not? And generally the advice that I've heard is, well, no, you shouldn't, you know, you need to do something logical. And I think it goes into, I don't know, it feels like we're in a wave of life where it's like, don't trust your intuition. Don't trust your gut. You want to use data. You need to use data all the time. That's the only way you can make good decisions. So how has passion shaped your life, your career? And why do you feel like it's the right call to follow your passion? There was this great economics interview i think with or like a lecture in berkeley at one point and there was a i forget he's pretty well known as an economist and he said people will tell you to chase your passion it's bullshit all of those people were exceptionally lucky and i'm not discounting that but i don't think it's bullshit (laughs) i was exceptionally lucky and my passion drove me to some of the worst failures of my life and some of the greatest successes of my life 
I think those failures though were incredibly valuable. And that's the thing. People often think when they say like, oh, chase your passion. And if you don't succeed, that you have wasted your time. You may have failed, but you never waste your time. You learn the mistakes that make you the person you are and will produce your better outcomes eventually. And I think when it comes to like moments where my passion led me to like successful things like Halite, those are moments I'm like super grateful for. And there was also a good amount of luck involved. But like I said, I think the most important thing to remember is when you do things with passion that other people will recognize it and appreciate it more. And that's why you can almost always get success with it. And it will put you in a place where you learn from that. I love that. I love that perspective. That was another question I wanted to ask is just on the note around, I think, piggybacking off what you said there, I think for some people, they're like, oh, passion equals easy, you know, that something is easy. And I think people have a hard time squaring up that you can be passionate about something and it can also be brutally difficult, but it's worth continuing to kind of engage with it. So in your journey, you talked about, obviously, it's brought you to some of those failures. What's your take on why should passion be easy or not be easy? And I guess when you're following your passion and you end up, I don't know, just some where you're like, this clearly isn't where I want to go, or this isn't working out. How do you course correct and decide intelligently to pursue your passion, but do it in another direction? Totally. Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot of people confuse like working on something passionately with it should be fun all the time, which it's not. There'll be a lot of moments where you're thinking like, why am I doing this? But the fact that you're still doing it while thinking, why am I doing this? That probably indicates that you're somewhat passionate about this. And when I was working as a the head of design at this startup, at some point there was times where I was like, why am I still doing this? And I was really quite burned out by the end of it. And I took a really, I was in a, I was in a bad place. I won't be shy about saying like I was very depressed. I was going through a divorce at the time. I was, that job moved away. I felt professionally like it was a big setback seeing the company scale down and having to force myself to reconcile new things. I thought for a while, am I really enjoying this still? And what really helped me gain perspective in that was taking a really extended break from it. I, me and my friend, I'm very grateful and privileged to have an amazing friend that one night was just sitting on my couch and we were drinking whiskey and he's like, I just learned how to ride a motorcycle. And he's like, you want to go to Alaska? And I was like, Stuart, are you, I'm asking if this is a serious question because if it's serious, it has very serious implications. <laughs> you can't take it back. Are you serious? And he's like, yes. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And we spent three months riding to literally the end of the road in Alaska. We rode all the way to the Arctic Ocean. And it was a very, very transformative journey for me. And it was a very difficult time in my life. But I remember patching up my bike like in a small Alaskan town where I was living for a little bit on the way back and thinking, oh, yeah, I craved it. I wanted to design things. I started envisioning things. It just came to me. And I realized, okay, this is what I'm passionate about. But I also need to make sure that I balance it correctly with my life, that I have other things in my life that I can lean on, other passions, other things. And... I don't burn myself out on it. And that is so crucial. Everybody will tell you and you'll see the landscape littered with the burnt out husks of people that love their passions, but burnt so bright that they burnt out. And it is so, so valuable to give yourself time to take a break, to reflect and to realize these are my passions and how can I healthily pursue them? Sure. So maybe the advice is, you know, if you ever feel disconnected from your passion. And maybe that's because you were pursuing your passion and just, you didn't get the results you wanted. You just are in a, I don't know, a bad segment of the journey of life, which, I, yeah. which everyone's going to go through at some point. Especially after last year. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think yeah. you're right. I think a lot of people had that experience last year to take a step away and kind of, I don't know, let that passion speak back to you. I think on the other side too, I guess I'm curious, you know, how do you nurture your passion? And I know for myself, it's just for the stuff I'm excited about, I'm not going to feel guilty about buying a book, even if it's an expensive, silly book, like a Toshin book on, I don't know, a design thing that I just find really, really enjoyable. And so there's, for me, I think there's a little bit of an art form in for the things that I really care about. I am never going to beat myself up about feeding that passion, whether it's going to events, whether it's buying stuff. What's your thoughts on the importance of feeding your passion and ways or examples of how you kind of nurture that? I think you honestly hit the nail on the head there with your examples. Like you should allow it ample room to grow and to thrive in your life. But I'll just reiterate, like I just think you need to see and make sure that it balances itself out. I know some really, really talented designers I was recently talking to who joined Apple and but kind of in the same place that I was when I was younger, when I was like in my early 20s. And he was like, like, how do I make this like not take over my entire life? 
And I feel like that's great to indulge in the passions, but setting, giving it boundaries is a really, really good idea. And then in a sense, I think it's great to find a few different ones. If you tend to be passionate about things, there's probably other things you can also be quite passionate about. And I think that is the greatest way to help you indulge healthily and sustainably in your passions is to find other ones that you can also indulge in and take a break from. No, that's great advice. You can put one down for a little while, be inspired by another, and then hopefully hear that one call your name again. (laughs) (laughs) This has been awesome. So I want to move just to a few closing questions. I think the first is, we've talked about a little bit at a high level, but one question I've just really enjoyed asking people recently is for a favorite failure. And I know in your journey that obviously, and part of why I like that is, you know, I know for a lot of people, obviously, you're just kind of the common image is if it's a failure, it just sucks. But, you know, I think that there's also those things that you feel at that you're proud of yourself for trying and that you're glad you got to the other end of it and you maybe recognize why it wasn't successful. What for you is a a favorite failure? There's a couple good ones. I really just made a lot of bad mistakes (laughs) in my life. Plenty of material there. We can fill another podcast with it. One of the more notable ones in my design career was getting an intro through a friend of mine to Travis Kalanick, who then had a company called Uber Cab. Never heard of it. I lived in San Francisco. I'd use cabs for (laughs) Maybe you've heard of it. You know, I was using cabs at the time and the cabs honestly sucked. It was terrible. They, I would call one for my girlfriend and you had to go there work. It just wouldn't show up. And then we had to stay and it was slightly more expensive than cabs, but you could just order a car and all that kind of stuff. But Daniel, the design of this app did not spark joy. It was very bad. It was very, very badly designed. So I sent an email and I was like, hey, the experience here, talk about user experience is incredible, but your actual user experience design, quote unquote, is atrocious can we fix this and i literally like did the same thing i did that by the time with hp i already mocked it up i had already made like super nice comps and sure enough went to travis directly and i was like this is really cool we got to meet and we met up i went to the office it was like a tiny scrappy office by then one of those corner buildings in the financial district in san francisco and he was really excited we had a great meeting and he walked out and they were like okay like i was still the head of design at this startup at the time clearly a little still doing my little passion projects He's like, okay, we love it. Like, we want to put you on design. Let's do it. And I never replied back. I was like, eh, cars, car app, kind of boring, whatever. <laughs> I love that you had gotten that far in where you had already mocked up, which takes, I'm guessing, hours and hours and hours and hours to get to the point where you're excited about something to share it. Yeah. And of course, being the classic me, like I had done like the app icon and stuff too, because I couldn't stand it. It was like this big red U on like a white background with the little glossy effect, the default glossy effect. And I was like, this won't do. Okay. It's going to be like black, like the cars. And it's going to be really nice and premium, yada, yada, yada. I cringe thinking about it now. I, I, not even like saying like, no, thanks. Not interested. Thanks for the offer. Literally just ghosting the CEO of Uber being like, nah, That's a good one. Whatever. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any others come to mind? Or maybe that's at the top of the list. Another favorite one is kind of like failing by success. Like I mentioned, Steve did not like Find My Friends. He was just not a fan of it. One day we came upon, maybe Steve supplied it, a piece of leather, which he really, really liked. And we proceeded to, this is after literally months, months of designing perfect interfaces. They were so cool and so nice in different versions. They all got shot down. And so we made the app leather we had three different kinds of leather a black one a brown one and a blue one sky blue like bright blue and it became a brown leather app. he loved it he loved it and when it came out it took a long time now people don't realize this but apple's a very slow moving company they're not working on the iphone 13 now that's like been done for years like they're working on the iphone 15 16 etc so it finally came out i was not working at apple anymore there was a keynote and eq was presenting find my friends and this big leather-stitched icon shows up on stage the same day they filed the patent application for it. Too. I'm still named on the patent for that icon. My name is forever attached to it. <laughs> and it's a stitched leather icon and stitched leather app. And people were like, what the... I'm not sure if I can swear, but what the bleep? This is... Why is this leather? What the hell? Everybody was just making fun of it. At this point, it was kind of like the wave of this like physicality in design. Some people refer to it as skeuomorphism, but it's only appropriate when it actually resembles a real object. But I digress was getting a little much in some cases a little extreme we had like game center was like a poker chip table with green felt and wood and people were just using this as the example of okay now it's gone too far it became such a joke and i happily took credit for it even though people were just like what was apple thinking this is the worst design i've ever seen a gizmodo made an article why is apple making the iphone look like the ugly wild west and like it was really funny and it was probably one of my favorite failures of like 
I mean, we succeeded in making the design unique and making it go past Steve. Yes, it was iconic. It was iconic. Iconic in a way the PT Cruiser was iconic, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that was it. And I think people will still remember it for sure. But it was a notable failure to produce the thing people, I think, wanted it to look like. I'm so glad I asked that question because I remember that. It's kind of funny. I'll just share it really quickly, but that's not uncommon. Like I remember we were at Square. So before the Cash App, we went through multiple iterations of this thing that was called Square Wallet and tried a bunch of different executions. And I remember one of them was literally modeled off of the denim on Jack's jeans, you know? And like, that was another example of literally it was like this specific type of denim. What if we can get that into the app? And maybe that one was slightly better received, but I wonder if people knew that Steve chose that leather if that would have been a different take on it. Maybe not. Yeah, a lot of people were like, man, Scott Forstall really liked whatever. And I was like, eh, it's like kind of biting my tongue. Like, oh, that's Scott. But I remember Robert talking at the time about like having a bunch of wallets that you guys yes. bought to like explore different leather finishes. And the and- iconic one was the Hermes wallet that was like, you know, had the right leather grain and the wallets cut-ins and all of that stuff. Card so. case and wallet were beautiful products too. They were beautiful flops and no one <laughs> wanted, to, <laughs> wanted to use them. And, you know, that's a whole separate story. But anyways, it was just a funny parallel there. I'm curious, I want to ask this question because I'm just super curious for your answer on it. What is your definition of success? You can take that any direction that you want, but I assume that that's something you've thought about quite a bit. You probably have an interesting answer there. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think I've been kind of like forced to reconcile that as I see a lot of people that have dug on different career paths than me, you know, and I'm kind of maturing and seeing new people come into the industry and making a choice between like, well, chasing your passion or doing like your own personal projects versus just working for the man. And I think either is great. And it all depends on your own personal definition of success. And for me, it's just to find absolute delight in what I do. I'm so grateful and so privileged that every day I get up and I get to do what I do. It has become a bit more businessy this year, but as you go through that phase, I'll eventually be able to focus on the things I like again even more. But that is to me just success, just that I can choose to, I don't have to do things that don't just make me unhappy. I optimize for happiness and that has never let me down in my life so far. And if that is a selfish definition of success, I'm fine with that. But as long as it doesn't harm anyone else or it does harm to the planet, I think that's my definition of success. It's a delightful answer. I've once heard that said as the goal of having everything on your to-do list be stuff that you just can't wait to do. Oh, and I like that. It's a rare day, a rare moment, depending on depending on the phase of life you're in. That's the case. Okay, last question. You talked about that pen on your desk a little bit earlier, that Japanese brass pen with the just amazing feel. What are other well-designed objects, apps, or things that you just love and they can be as silly as stupid and dumb and small as silly as you want or they can be like the motorcycle that you drive (laughs) (laughs) i still love leica cameras leica cameras are just delightful i shoot with the leica m10 now and i love just having a manual focus lens and i realized very quickly that it's great to just if you mess it up and you get the wrong shot you can say it was me i missed the focus i had the settings wrong it was my bad it gives a great sense of agency over your mistakes and over the picture because it's not that fighting that little pop-up flash thing anymore. It's not saying like, oh, the camera focused on the wrong thing. No, it was you. <laughs> and in using, it's wonderfully clearly designed. It's solid. It's made out of brass, just like that pen. It's just it's dense. It's lovely. I really like it. Another really nice thing that I recently saw Bart put out, a lot of people don't notice, but Polaroid, it's one of the most inspiring stories ever. Edwin Land, the inventor, of the Polaroid completely reinvented photography and the company basically slowly slid into irrelevance and it was then sold off in little parts to places and the trademark went to like Android phones and TVs and all sorts of nonsense. But a couple Polaroid enthusiasts in the Netherlands bought an old factory to restore it to keep the old way of making that instant film alive. And they did pretty well for a while. And then they managed to get enough money together to buy part of the Polaroid brand and to make Polaroid cameras again. And for a long time, they just refurbished old ones, but now they made a new one that's really tiny, and it is really a proper little tiny Polaroid, and I like everything about it. It's delightful. It's called, I think, Polaroid 1. Super small, white camera. Comes with tiny square pictures, so like old Polaroids, square, but much smaller. And everything about it, Daniel, everything about it is a delight. It comes with a little sticker set, 
And the sticker set has like a little sticker of it sticking its tongue out because to prevent the picture from getting exposed immediately, it actually has a little tongue that sticks out now. So they changed the design a little bit, but every part about it is just designed with so much delight and joy that it's clear that the people who worked on it loved working on it. And that's just, you feel that. It's so, so cool. Yeah, that's something you think to check out. That's so neat. And it's a perfect place to end on because I think it's an amazing example of people making something out of passion, which is very clearly what you and Ben have been able to do with, with Lux and Halide. And yeah, just the fact that well-designed things made by passionate people that are done thoughtfully stand out in the world. <laughs> kind of crowd, crowded. <laughs> and it's crowded with, with things that aren't that most of the time. Thank you so much for your time, Sebastian. This has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. It's been a delight, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. And for anyone that wants to follow you or wants to learn more about Lux, I guess, can you just share where people can find you, where you can find your apps and your website? Yeah, so you can search for Halid in the App Store. It is today. It is the app of the day, I just found out. Uh, it's featured on the App Store, which is really cool. But when you're listening to this, it probably is not. But you can find it on the App Store. It's spelled H-A-L-I-D-E. The other app is called Spectre, but you can find it on the same page. Our website is lux.camera. And if you're looking for me online, I'm SDW, Sierra Delta Whiskey, pretty much anywhere on Twitter, on Instagram, not on paparazzi yet, but presumably soon. You must have gotten that handle in the early days. Yes. <laughs> you yes. can still get three letter <laughs> handles that, are, that actually resemble your name. Totally. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. To explore other episodes and sign up for our free weekly newsletter, visit outlieracademy.com. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. We release a new episode every week on Tuesday. Until next time, keep putting in the work, and I'll see you next week right here on Outlier Academy.